What did we look at last time I was, we were here? Well, I guess for a start, right? We're studying, we're looking at the gospel of God. What is the gospel? Okay. So we're doing shh, we're doing a study of the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news. Okay, so the word gospel in that where it came from in the Greek meant good news. But how does the Bible use the word gospel? What is the good news? Jesus, right? It's the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, the good news of Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Okay. And so we're going to be looking at like Jesus, but across all the different, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the Gospels, big picture, God's Gospel. And we've said that that Gospel, the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus doesn't begin in the New Testament. It doesn't begin with Matthew. It begins in Genesis. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about the Gospel. And so what we've been doing is looking through the looking at the Old Testament and looking at different places in the Old Testament that we see the gospel in some quite cool ways. And so we've looked at a few different things, but last time we looked at the story of Abraham Lincoln, Abraham and Isaac. What about Abraham and Isaac? What about Abraham and Isaac? Why did we look at that story? On this side. They basically, when, how, what were they doing? Yeah. Yeah, so it's this, it's this very strange story, and as I said at the time, I never really liked it in Sunday school, because it, it just seemed like a really bad story. Like, God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his son. Why would you do that? But it turns out, he's basically acting out the gospel. He's acting out what's going, what God is ultimately going to do with Jesus, right? He's going to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, and sacrifice him on a mountain. And it turns out, I'm pretty sure... It's the same mountain that Abraham and Isaac were on. Certainly, it's very close, Jerusalem. Um, and yeah, and so we looked at that. We looked at even the idea that, like, afterwards, Isaac goes missing from the story. Remember? When does he come back? Who brings Rebecca? The servant. So Abraham has his un the servant who, in the story, doesn't have a name, but we know his name is actually. Do you remember? What does it mean? Helper. God's helper. Eliezer. Eliezer. God's helper. Eliezer. But in the story, he has no name, and Abraham, the father, sends his servant, his helper, out into the world to go and get a bride for his son Isaac. And it's when the servant comes back with the bride that we see Isaac in the story again. And that's a picture of? Yeah, that's, that's Jesus. That's waiting for his bride to come. Who's his bride? Cool. Okay. So that was the story of Abraham, the church. Christians are described as the bride of God, Jesus' bride. So that's the story of Abraham and Isaac, which is cool, right? Like, that's the gospel. In about, what is it? Fifth, that was about 2000 BC, 2000 years before Jesus. Today, we're going to jump forward another 800 years to about 1200 BC. 
In that time, Abraham, uh, Isaac and Rebekah have had... Why did Abraham believe that God would raise Isaac from the dead? Had to raise Isaac from the dead. And Isaac has no kids, right? He hasn't got a wife. He hasn't got any kids. So yeah, so God had promised that he was going to make this great nation. I will make you into a great nation to Abraham through Isaac, but Isaac has no kids. So if Isaac dies, how's God going to fulfill his promise? But Abraham believes that God will fulfill his promise and therefore Isaac must survive this. And if he has to kill him, that means God has to raise him from the dead. Okay. So, but now Isaac is Rebecca. They have kids. They have twins, actually. Called? Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. So they have these two twins, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob, who's the twin who's chosen to continue the promise that that God gave to Abraham, passed to Isaac, and then out of Isaac's children, it was going to go to Jacob. And Jacob had his name changed to? Israel, and then, yeah, so anyway, so Jacob marries he wants to marry Rachel, but he finds himself marrying Leah, and then Rachel. So yeah, so in this time, in this 800 years between Abraham and where we're going to be today, you've had Isaac and Rebekah, they've had Jacob and Esau. Jacob has married Rachel and Leah. He gets tricked into marrying Rachel's sister, Leah, and then working another seven years to marry Rachel. And then between them and their servants, he has 12 sons. And those become the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah? Okay. In that time, Jacob's second youngest son, who was called... Joseph is sold by his brothers as a slave to Egypt. While there, Joseph goes from, he ends up in prison, but then he goes from prison to basically prime minister of the biggest empire at that stage on earth. And because he was prime minister of Egypt, he was able to save the Egyptians and the rest of his family from starvation because there's this famine and all that kind of stuff, yeah? Okay. And so that's what brings Jacob and at this stage his like, there's a, they're a family of 70 people. Brings them, children, wives, all to Egypt. And that's what gets uh, Israel, Jacob, into Egypt. While they're there, as they multiply, people think there might have been as many as a million Hebrews, descendants of Jacob, by the time a new pharaoh arises and makes them slaves in Egypt. And so then they're slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God to help them. And so he sends them. Moses. Moses leads them out of Egypt to the promised land. But when they get to the promised land, They complain along the way, and then they get there, and they send 12 spies in to check out the land. And the spies come out and say, it's amazing. It's everything God said it would be. But there are giants in there. We're like grasshoppers in their sights. And two of the spies say, who cares? God's with us. But the other 10 say, no, there's no way. We're going to get killed in there. And so they don't believe, despite God bringing them out of Egypt and all the miracles and everything, they don't believe that God can give them the promised land. They believe that God is going to allow them to die there. And so God basically says, fine, you don't go into the promised land. You'll wander around the desert for 40 years until you're all dead. And then your children, I will bring your children into the promised land. So that's what happens. Eventually, even Moses dies. And once Moses is dead, his young apprentice Joshua 
leads the children that came out of Egypt into the promised land. And they take the promised land and that sets up the nation of Israel. Now, eventually Joshua dies. And at this point, Israel has no leader. Who is supposed to be their leader? Who are they supposed to follow? God, right? God's supposed to be the leader of Israel, but they're not very good at following God. They'll like abandon him. They'll go worship other gods, worship idols. So then God will essentially allow them to be oppressed, beaten, attacked by tribes, other tribes from around there, the Amalekites, the Midianites, the, all, the, all these people, Ammonites. So eventually, after their suffering, they'll cry out to God, please save us. And so then he will raise up a, a judge, a leader for them. Samson, Deborah, who? All the people. Sorry? G-Guy. Gideon? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So all these people that God will raise up for a while, they will, he will use that person to defeat whoever their enemy is at that time, give Israel peace, security again. They'll all be great, happy, worshiping God, but then time will pass. They'll go off, start worshiping other gods again, and then the whole cycle just repeats. And so that's the time of the judges where it says Israel had I didn't write that down. Israel had no king. Everybody did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. They just did whatever they, they wanted to do, basically. And so that never went, went well. And that went on for about 400 years before the Israelites eventually say, we want a king. Now, who was supposed to be their king? God was supposed to be their king. But they said, no, we want a human king. We want a man who can be our king like all the other nations have. And so... God says, fine. That's the scary thing. God often gives us what we want. It's not the thing we need. But if we're determined, he will sometimes say, okay, fine, you can have what you want and then discover that it's actually not what you need and what you should want. But anyway, so he says, okay, fine, you can have a king and he gives them King Saul. And that doesn't go well. And then Saul is replaced by King David. It's much better. That was the king that God ultimately wanted to give them if they'd been a little bit more patient. Um, and David, with all of his flaws, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Um, and so that goes much better. And then he has a son called... who builds the temple, Solomon. Solomon, and then, and, then, and then that begins the age of the kings, where Israel have kings leading them, which then goes through into history. So anyway, so that's kind of what happens. That's the Old Testament, really. Where our story that we're looking at today happens during the time of the judges, the time when Israel had no king and everybody did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, which is not a very good time in Israel's history. And so we're going to be looking at this little four-chapter book, which some of you will know, which is the book of Ruth. This was actually, yeah, it's like this beautiful little story. It's a love story. It's only four chapters long. comes right after the book of Judges, because it happens during the time of the Judges. And it was actually the, the first study when I started teaching youth. This is the first book we went through. It took 12 weeks to go through the four chapters. Um, this time, yeah, we don't have time to do that because we're not here to study Ruth. We're here to study the good news, the, good news, the gospel. Um, and so instead of 12 weeks, I'm hoping to do it in, well, it's going to be two weeks. Probably, hopefully, yeah. Uh, it's a cool story. It's a really cool book. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was like 10 chapters, yeah. No, it's like, it's, it's an amazing little book. It's a really, really cool. There's so much stuff in there. This is going to be a highlights package. It's going to be a summary. Today, we're going to go through the story of Ruth, so you guys know the story. And then next week, we'll look at the gospel in Ruth. Because that's why I started there, was because the story of Ruth is also a picture, like Abraham and Isaac, it's a picture of the gospel. 
in some really cool ways. Yeah, and we'll hopefully see this again that we've looked at before, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you guys study the scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think, like, if you understand it perfectly, you understand exactly what God wants you to do, and you do it all perfectly, then you will have life. And he says, no, you're missing the point. These scriptures are about me, including the story of Ruth. Cool. Okay. So, bit of backstory. Story of Ruth begins in this little town of Bethlehem. It's a little bit small, but it's that little yellow dot there next to the Dead Sea. And it's in the, in the area of Israel that was called Judah. It's where the tribe of Judah and Benjamin's, Benjamin were. And it begins with a man called Elimelech. Eli means my God, like Eliezer. Eli, El is God, E is mine, me. So it's my God. And Melech is king. It's the word for king. So Eli, Melech means my God is king. Yeah. And he has a wife called Naomi. Naomi. And her, her name means something like, it's something that's like, Pleasant, delightful, something that you delight in. Because it's, again, it's got this E at the end, which means it's mine. So it's like my pleasure, my, my delight. And they have two sons. They have a son called Machlon and a son called Kilion. Machlon means unhealthy or sickly. And Kilion means to waste away or wither. So I'm guessing these were not very healthy kids. Machlon. Mach. Mach. You got it. Machlon. Machlon. Yeah. Okay, so then we're told, we're told that there's a famine in the land of Judah. There's no food. So... Elimelech decides he's going to take his family and they're going to move across the Dead Sea, across the Jordan River to the land of Moab, which was really like Israel's enemies, right? This was a land that God had cursed or people that God had cursed was the stuff that they'd done. Um, but anyway, he decides to take his family out of God's promised land and into the land of Moab. And when he gets there, he dies. We don't know. We're just told that he died sometime after getting there. Meanwhile, uh, his, their children, Machlon and Kilion, they get married. Kilion marries somebody called Orpa. It's the word for gazelle, like a buck. A buck, like a gazelle, like an animal. Like, I don't know, like, kind of like a deer. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, the word means, it's essentially a word that means to run away. It comes from the, a word that's the back of the neck, and it's because that's what you see when they're running away. So Orpah kind of means run away. Machlon marries a young Moabite called Ruth. And Ruth's name means friend or companion. They are very fitting, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so anyway, so now they've got kids, but they, uh, they're married, but then Machlon and Kilion die. And so this is chapter one of the book of Ruth. It's pretty tragic, you know? Naomi, whose name means... Sorry? Pleasure. Pleasure. My pleasantness, my, my delight is left all alone in a foreign country with basically her two daughters-in-law, her Moabite, foreign, foreigner's daughter-in-law, and she's all alone, right? Her husband, her sons are all dead. So, as I say, it's pretty tragic. Naomi then decides there's no point her staying in Moab as a foreigner 
widow. She should go back to Israel. She's got some friends there. She maybe has some family there. But she says to her daughters-in-law, like, there's no point you guys coming with me. I have no more sons for you to marry. I've got nothing to give you, you know. And God, she says, is clearly against me. My life is full of suffering. There's no point you becoming a part of that. She says, go back to your families, go find a new husband, start a new life, be happy. But, yeah. Orpah, initially she's like, no, no, I want to come with you. But once she sort of, Naomi explains the situation, Orpah agrees and she leaves. Gazelle, yeah? But it says that Ruth tongued to her quite, Tongue to Naomi tightly. Naomi says to Ruth, like, your sister-in-law, Orpah, she's gone back to her family. Why don't you go too? Go back to your people. Go back to your God. Follow Orpah. But Ruth says, and it's just like amazing passage. She says, stop urging me to abandon you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I do not keep my promises. Only death will be able to separate me from you. It's cool, eh? It's beautiful. And it's, it's amazing because this... We've talked about this at some point, but this word Lord, where you see it in your Bibles and it's all capital... There's a word in Hebrew for Lord, for like master, somebody who's in charge, and it's Adonai. That's not the word that's used here. If it's just like small letters or just a capital L and then small O-R-D, that would be Adonai. But where it's all capitals, it's, it's a different word. It's, it's what's called yod Hey vav Hey. It's Y-H-V-H, Yahweh, Jehovah. It's the name of God. And... In Jewish thought, his name was too holy to pronounce. And so they wouldn't write it in here. They would, well, no, when they were reading it, they wouldn't say it. Whenever they got to that word, your Y-H-V-H, they would say Adonai. They would say Lord. And so when it was translated into English, most English Bibles don't write out his name. They write Lord in capitals like this. But what's cool is like Ruth She's a Moabite, right? They have their own gods. But she's saying, who is she calling on for her promise? It's the God of Israel, right? It's Naomi's God. So anyway, yeah, I said, love it. Uh, true friend, true companion, yeah? She's like, I'm not leaving. Wherever you go, I'm going too. And so Naomi realizes like there's nothing. She's not going to get rid of Ruth, so fine. They go back to Bethlehem together. When they get there, when they get there, uh, all the women in the village are super excited to see Naomi. She's been gone for like 10 years. And they're like, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me that. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Sovereign One has treated me very harshly. I left here full, but the Lord has caused me to return empty-handed. Why do you call me Naomi, seeing that the Lord has opposed me and the Sovereign One has caused me to suffer? And so you can see how she's feeling and how she's thinking, right? Her name means pleasant, delight, my delight. And she's saying, I'm not God's delight. My life is not a delight. It's not pleasant. My life is full of suffering. And so she says, call me Mara. And Mara means bitter, because that's what my life is. It's bitter. I've lost everything everything that matters to me. So I say, this is like, a, it's a pretty dismal start to a, to a story, right? And depressing. But for me, like, it's also what's beautiful about it is because this is like, this is real life. Life is full of senseless tragedy and heartbreaking pain. And that's where the story starts in like complete darkness. But this is the start of the story. This isn't where the story ends. 
In the book of Romans, there's this like wonderful promise. Romans 8.28, where God says that, well, Paul says, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. I really like this because, well, because of what it doesn't say. Because if if you think this means that everything works out for the best, everything happens for a reason, there's a good reason for everything. I don't know. There seems to be a whole lot in life that's not good, that doesn't seem to happen for any good reason. But it doesn't actually say that. It doesn't say that all things will be good. For those who, are, who love God, everything will go well in your life. That's not what it says. We're not promised that in the Bible. In fact, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble and suffering. You know? We're not promised that we will be spared. The, the fact is we live in a broken world. A fallen world, full of disease, full of all sorts of things that cause this pain and hurt in our lives, we're also free. You know, Elimelech chose to leave God's land of blessing and go to Moab. We don't know what choices they made over there and what, what I don't know how Machlon and Kilion died. I don't know if they got sick and died. I don't know if they made some stupid decision and got themselves killed. Got no idea, you know? These, we, in this world, we have both these things going on. We live in a, in a broken world where bad things just happen. Cancer and stuff like this. I don't think God's picking people to give cancer to. Genetics and sunburn and all these sorts of things, you know? Like, and we are also, He's given us freedom. We get to make choices and the choices that we make have consequences, you know? The choices that we make have consequences. The choice that other people make have consequences for us. And God's not in there like, like He's given us that freedom, you know? And so it's not that everything's going to go perfectly or even that everything's going to be the way that God wants it to be. That's not what this says. What this says is that whatever happens and why ever it happens, God can bring something good out of it if you let Him. You know? He can work it together for good. He can make as tragic and senseless and heartbreaking as a situation can be, if we trust Him, His promise is that He can bring something good out of that. You know? And that's what we're going to see in the story of Ruth. Begins in tragedy. She lost absolutely everything, but the ending of the story is incredible. It's beautiful. Naomi becomes a part of the gospel, but a part of the story of the Messiah. She doesn't know that yet. All she knows is she's lost everything that she loves. So, okay. That was chapter one. Chapter two. We're, we're introduced to a new person. We're introduced to a man called Boaz, Boaz, who is a relative of Elimelech. We don't know how he's related to Elimelech, but he's related to Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband. And we're told that Boaz is wealthy and important. And he essentially is the hero of the story. The knight in shining armor, if you like. So Boaz. And then there's something that you need to understand, which is called the law of gleaning. Do you guys know what welfare is? Yeah, it's basically people who can't afford to feed themselves. We have welfare. The government, like taxpayers, provide money to help them. 
they didn't have that. They didn't have welfare per se. They didn't, people, poor people didn't get paid money in ancient Israel. But they had a form of welfare, one of which was called this law of gleaning, which was basically that farmers, God told farmers that when they harvest their fields, they mustn't harvest the edges, the corners, leave that unharvested. And when their harvesters are going through collecting up all the bundles of wheat, anything that falls to the ground, they mustn't pick up. They must just leave there. Those things belong to the poor, the widows, the orphans, those who aren't able to support themselves. They can come and collect wheat from the edges of the fields. They can come and collect up anything that falls. Okay. So that was the law of gleaning. And so Ruth, they're back in Israel, Ruth and Naomi, back in Israel. Ruth says to Naomi, there's no point in me sitting around here doing nothing. I may as well go and glean, find some food for us. And so Naomi says, That's, it sounds like a good idea. And then it says, oh, I didn't put this in here. It says that when Ruth went out to glean in somebody's field, it just happened that she ended up in... Boaz's field, this relative of Elimelech, pure coincidence. She doesn't know Boaz, Boaz doesn't know her, but she happens to end up in Boaz's field. Yeah, probably not a coincidence. Probably somebody else knew what was going on. But uh, yeah, anyway. So she's now gleaning, collecting up wheat in Boaz's field. Boaz arrives that morning to come check out what's going on, check on, in on his harvesters and stuff like that. And he sees this young lady. He's like, who is she? And what's she doing here? And so he asked his servant in charge of the harvesters, who does this young woman belong to? And the servant in charge of the harvesters replied, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the region of Moab. So who does Boaz ask about Ruth? Servant, the one in charge of all the harvesters, the chief servant, this important guy. What's his name? I don't know. I'm not told his name. Okay. So Boaz is chief servant. We don't have a name for him. All right. What does this chief servant say about M Ruth? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he says, this is that young Moabite woman. Everybody knew about her. They knew Naomi had come back from Moab, and she knew that there was, they knew that there was this young Moabite who had followed her, that had come with her, and that was looking after her. And so, anyway, so this Boaz, essentially the servant, introduces Ruth to Boaz. And Boaz says, to, oh, and, and he also says that she's been working hard all morning out in the sun. And so Boaz says, okay, to Ruth, don't go to anybody else's field, stay here. You can follow, so basically the men would go through and harvest, like, like I think cut down the stalks, and then the women servants would follow behind and bundle them all up into sheaves or whatever. And he said, you can go with the women. Stick with them. You'll be safe with them. There'll be you know, a bunch of you. And he says, collect all the grain you want. And if you get thirsty, help yourself to, my, to the water that's here that's for my, for my workers. And Ruth is kind of shocked. Because she's like this young, she's a foreigner for start, right? And this young lady, she's got nothing. She's like poor, destitute. And this important, wealthy man is showing interest in it. It was showing, like he's caring about her, right? He's, he's wanting to look after her. And he sa she says to him, like, what are you doing? Like, I'm a foreigner. Why are you being so kind to me? And Boaz says to her, I've been given a full report of all that you have done for your mother-in-law following the death of your husband. Like, I've been told all about what you've been doing for Naomi. How you left your father and your mother as well as your homeland and came to live among people you did not know. May the Lord reward your efforts. May your act of kindness be repaid fully by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have sought protection. And so basically, he says, like, I've heard what you've been doing. I've heard that you've decided to make the God of Israel your protection. And for these reasons, like, I want to help you. So then after lunch, which he shares with Ruth, 
Has anybody had uh, uh, a fresh bread that you dip into like vinegar and olive oil? Have you done that? Just oil. Okay. Okay. Has anybody had it with vinegar? It's real yum. It's like a, as you get up, get older, it's a thing. It's a Mediterranean thing, I think. They like put, put, put olive oil in a bowl and then you put uh, balsamic vinegar in. It's like the dark one and it doesn't like mix. So you end up with these little balls of vinegar in amongst the oil and you take nice fresh bread and dip it in and eat it. It's so yummy. Anyway, that's what uh, Ruth and Boaz has. It said they like dip bread in vinegar and they eat it for lunch, which I thought was kind of cool because I still do that. Should have, yeah, sorry, that would have been good. Anyway, so they have lunch together, and then Boaz tells his workers to intentionally drop grain for Ruth to pick up, right? <laughs> Don't tell her, but like, just, yeah, leave stuff there for her. And so at the end of the day, Ruth has collected 15 kilograms of barley, which is a lot. It's enough to feed her and Naomi for almost a week in that one day. And so then she goes home with this big bag of barley. And when Naomi sees her, she's like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, where were you today? Why did you, how did you get so much grain? And she clicks, there's something funny going on here. This is not normal. And so she says, where were you today? Whose field were you in? <laughs> Classic mom. And Ruth told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked. She said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he re be rewarded by the Lord because he has shown loyalty to the living on behalf of the dead. Then Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. He is our guardian. So when Naomi hears where Ruth was, like it begins to click. She knows what's going on here. She knows that Boaz is, is a relative of Elimelech, and he real, she realizes that he's, being, he's basically looking after his brother or whatever it is, cousin's family. And that's why he's being kind to her. Yeah. And then we get to this last little verse there, which is really important and kind of the point of the whole story. The reason that we're looking at it. Naomi says to Ruth, he is our a close relative and he's our guardian. The word is goel. And it's a very interesting and very important word, goel. Last time when we were in the book of, when we were looking at Abraham Isaac, we talked about something called the law of first mention. The idea that the first place that a word or an idea is used in the Bible is often very important for understanding what it means. Do you remember that? Do you remember what word we looked at? The story of Abraham and Isaac. Mm -mm. It's the first place a particular word is used in the whole Bible shows up in the story of Abraham and Isaac. It was love. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It was where God said to Abraham. It's where God said to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him on the hill that I'm going to show you. That's the first place where the word love appears, and it's the love of a father for his son. So, this word goel is used a lot in the, in the Old Testament. The first three places that it's used, God is the goel, and it's translated redeem. Basically, to rescue or save. And the person who's doing the rescuing or the saving is God. And so, the first places that this word is used, it's made very clear that God is the Redeemer, 
right? He's the Goel. He's the Savior. Then in his law, this word Goel changes from a word that like a verb or a word that means to redeem. What are you smiling at? Ah. Changes from this word that means redeem. It becomes a job title, the Goel. And basically, say you get yourself into lots of debt, which is, what is debt? <laughs> how do you end up with negative amounts of money? Where do you get that money from? You borrow it, right? You have to borrow it from somewhere. You have to borrow it from somewhere. Now we have banks, so you can go and borrow it from the bank. But they didn't always have banks. Maybe you have a well, maybe you go to your parents. Parents would be a bad example. Maybe you go to a friend and you say, I need, I've got no food. Or I've got no this. I've got no that. I need help. Can you please lend me something? Some money, some whatever, right? Maybe you need grain to plant in your field and you don't have any. So you say to your friend, please, can you give me five bags of grain? Once I get my harvest, I'll pay you back. Yeah? But this, you can get yourselves into bad situations and money as well. You get to a point where you're in a situation where you, where you owe so much that you can't pay it back. You're in debt. Right? You owe more than you can pay back. And if, that's, if you get yourself into that situation back in that day, you owe somebody money and you can't pay them back, you might have to sell them your land, the land that belongs to your family, to pay the debt that you owe them. Or if you've got no land, you may have to essentially become a slave to them sell yourself to them. I will work for you for free for 10 years until I've paid back my debt to you. Does that make sense? So you essentially, you either lose all of your property or you lose yourself. You become a slave for some amount of time. If you get yourself into that situation, that's where this Goel comes in. If you have a wealthy family member, he can come and redeem you. which means he can pay your debt for you and either buy back your property, return your property to you, or redeem you from slavery. Yeah? Free you, set you free from your debts to whoever. Does it make sense? That's the goel. It's, the, it's a job of a particular family member. You start, can, can you kind of see the picture? How this is maybe related to what we're here about, the gospel. A redeemer that comes and pays our debts to set us free. Okay. So what Naomi is actually saying here is that Boaz is our Goel. He's our redeemer. He can save us. Yeah? Okay. But anyway, she says to Ruth, basically, it's good. It's good you're in Boaz's field. Stay there. You'll be safe. You'll be well looked after. Keep going to Boaz's field. And so she does. She keeps going every day, except probably the Sabbaths, for several months to collect up grain for her and her mother-in-law until the harvest is eventually over. And that's chapter 2. She brings us to chapter 3. So, okay, Ruth and Naomi have food, but Naomi's brain's like ticking. So, Jewish mom, she's starting to hatch a plan. And she's basically saying like, well, she can see something's going on here. This man's being very, very good to, this, to Ruth. And so she starts making plans for her daughter-in-law. Verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, At that time... Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, so that you will be secure. Now Boaz, with whose female servants you worked, is our close relative. 
look, tonight he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor. And so basically, Naomi wants to find a husband for Ruth. Because this is not a great situation, living as widows in Israel and collecting up grain out of somebody's field and trying to survive. Like she wants a long-term solution for the daughter that she loves. And so she's like, I need to find you a husband. And who would be better than? Boaz. But what does a rich, important man like Boaz want with a poor, destitute widow like Ruth? Well, so then there's another law in ancient Israel that becomes important called the law of leveret marriage. Leveret is a, I think it was Latin or something, basically means brother-in-law. The law of brother-in-law marriage. This is another sort of form of welfare, not, not quite, but kind of similar. Basically, if a man, so okay, Ruth has married Machlon, but then Machlon dies. Two things have happened, and they have no children, right? So two things have happened. Mahlon's family line in Israel no longer exists. There's nobody to continue it, right? And uh, we might have mentioned this, but they didn't have surnames in Israel. You were son of so-and-so. So I would be Disney, son of Paul, son of, actually Disney, son of Disney. My great-grandparents were Disney's. Uh, and so you just go back the line like that, right? And then I'd have a son of Disney, hopefully. And then your line continues through. And, you, and these, all these family lines exist within the nation of Israel. God wanted that to continue. And so, but if you die and you have no kids or certainly no sons, then that family line is gone from Israel. And so that was the one problem. And then the other problem is you leave a widow, and it was not that easy to survive as a, just as a, an unmarried widow in ancient Israel, or in a, just in the ancient world, really. And so there was this provision in God's law called the law of leveret or law of brother-in-law marriage to try to help with that, which is basically that the widow, if she chooses to, could go to her dead husband's brother and ask him to marry her. And if he says yes, and they get married, well, firstly, now the widow's looked after, so that's good. She has somebody to, to take care of her and to provide for her. And if they have a son, that son, the first son that they have, belongs to the dead husband. So rather than being son of brother-in-law, it would be son of original husband. And then their family line would continue. And any property that belonged to the brother that would con like continue with that part of the family line. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. That was a right that belonged to widows in ancient Israel. The brother-in-law didn't have to say yes. He could say, no, I don't want to do that. But that would be very shameful to do. Because, yeah, uh, you're like essentially betraying your brother, refusing to, to look after his family line, you're, you know, abandoning his widow and whatnot. So anyway, so that was the law of leveret marriage. Now, technically, in the, in the scriptures, this only applied to the brother of the dead man. But it seems in, at this stage in ancient Israel that they'd kind of expanded that and basically if you didn't have a brother, for example, or like in this case your brother's dead as well, that that responsibility would move on to whoever the next closest family member was. Anyway, so it is on this basis that Ruth can approach Boaz. As we said, why is this wealthy, important man Boaz going to be interested in this like poor widow Ruth, even if he wasn't, she kind of has a right to go to him, kind of, through this law. But she's a Moabite, 
she doesn't know all of this stuff. Uh, well, yeah, so, so she can go to Boaz and basically ask him to be her Goel, her redeemer. But she's very small, right? She's a Gentile. She doesn't know all of this. Um, she doesn't know how it works or how to approach a Jewish Goel. And so her mother-in-law, her Jewish mother, mother-in-law, Nomi, explains it to her. Nomi says, bathe yourself, rub on some perfumed oil and get dressed up. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know that you are there until he finishes his meal. When he gets ready to go to sleep, take careful notice of the place where he lies down. Then go, uncover his legs and lie down beside him. He will tell you what to do. <laughs> that's a that's a right face. It's weird, right? Yeah, it's a bit weird. We'll get there in a minute. <clears throat> Naomi says that the men. She said that in the last part. She said the men are winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So basically, the harvest process. You go and collect all your stalks of grain. Yeah. That has like the grain, the kernels that you want, but also lots of other stuff we call chaff. And that had to be separated. And that process of separating the kernels, which you want, from all the like other stuff. Like, you know corn? You've got the, the actual kernels. That's the part that you want to eat. And then you've got all the stuff around the outside. Yeah, that's the chaff. You've got to get rid of that. And the way that they did it with like barley and wheat was they would, it's called thresh it. They would just basically bash it up. They would sometimes have like cattle walk over it and stuff like that and then bash it, bash it, bash it to break all the little kernels loose from all the other stuff. That was called threshing. And they're, they're at the threshing floor where the threshing takes place, where they bash up all the wheat. After they finish bashing up all the wheat, they then do something called winnowing, which is they take a big fork and then throw it up in the air and the wind would... When, when the wind was blowing and the wind would take all the light stuff, the chaff, and blow it away and then the kernels would fall down. And you'd end up, if you did it right, with a big pile of kernels and further down a big pile of chaff, which you'd burn and get rid of. Yeah? So that's what they're doing. Uh-oh. And this whole process would take several days. And while they were doing this, the men would sleep at the threshing floor to make sure that nobody steals the, their barley um, and then also kind of have a big party, I think, with all the men together at the threshing floor. So anyway, Ruth does exactly what she's told. She sneaks down to the threshing floor. She hides. She sees where Boaz is going to sleep. When he goes to sleep, she sneaks up to him, lifts his robe up, I would say probably to like his knee maybe, and then lies down at his feet. In the middle of the night, Boaz rolls over and he's surprised to find a girl sleeping there, right? And he's like, what are you doing? Who is this? And so he says, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread the edge of your garment over your servant, for you are a family guardian. You are a Goel, right? You are my Goel or our Goel. A bold request. Put your clothes, put your, put your robe over me. Okay. That brings us to another word that's really interesting. It's the word kanaf. And literally the word kanaf means the edge or border of something. Okay? That was a word that was used for wing, like the wing of a bird. The edge of, you know, edges, border, oh, out wide, extremities. And so back in verse, in chapter 2, where Boaz said to Ruth, May your acts of kindness be repaid fully by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have sought protection. The word for wings is kanaf. Okay? But this word is like it's got a double meaning in Hebrew because it can also be, it is also the word for the hem of a garment. That, yeah? Or you sewed over at the end. It's the edge, the border, the edge of the garments. Yeah, was also called a kanaf. And so she's saying to him, spread your kanaf, spread the hem of your garment over me. Okay, as I say, sounds strange, but um, 
in Jewish society, apparently, they would sew patterns, patterns onto the edges, the hem of their robes. And the patterns were like, they basically were a sign of your rank, of how important you were. So, you know, like in the military, they get like the stripes on the shoulders and the badges and things like that. And they tell you how important this person is. In Israel, it was like that, but it was what was embroidered, what was sewed onto the hem of the garment, of the robe. It was a symbol of their power, their authority. That's why the woman wants to like touch the edge of Jesus' cloak or his robe, right? It's because it was a symbol of his power and she felt like if she could touch that, she would receive some of his power. You get, yeah, there's a, a bunch of places where this comes up. And so what Ruth is really asking Boaz to do is to cover her with his authority, with his power, with his protection. Does that make sense? He's asking her to marry her. Him. He's ask, she's asking him to marry her. To bring her under his protection. Okay. <laughs> it is an interesting way to do it, but that's what, her, that's what her Jewish mom suggested she do. Okay. No, that's definitely not the way everybody did it. Her situation is a bit different to an ordinary situation. Normally, like, the parents would basically decide who's marrying who and they'd make the... We talked... We talked about this a while ago, like you get the engagement and then they'd go away for a year and blah, blah, blah. That would be like normal. This is a different situation. This is a widow asking somebody to be her, Goel, to redeem her, to marry her. And yeah, and this is the way that the um, Naomi advises her to go about it. Okay. So, will you marry me? And Boaz, no, no, no. what does Boaz say? Well, to begin with, <laughs> to begin with, shh, to begin with, to begin with, he says to Ruth, basically, like he would be honored to marry her. That everybody knows how wonder, like what a wonderful woman she is, and how faithful she's been to, to Naomi. But. There's a plot twist. There's another man. I know, the drama. <laughs> so, he says, he says, I would love to marry you, but there's a closer relative. There's another man who, according to the law, has the first essentially right to redeem Naomi's property and to act to act as a goel he's not the closest relative there's a closer relative which is devastating right and i imagine scary for ruth because like she wants to marry boaz this man that she knows that that cares about her she doesn't want to marry some random guy she doesn't know you know but anyway it's out of her hands it's the law and so boaz basically says don't worry trust me I'll sort it out in the morning. And that brings us to chapter 4. And I think we're going to have to leave chapter 4 for next week. Yeah, I reckon we'll leave, we'll leave that for next week. That'll be a good place to stop. Cliffhanger. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, thank you so so much again for your word lord and for the um it's just so beautiful the pictures we haven't got there yet but lord just the the uh the heart that we see throughout it lord the love that um boaz had for ruth and his the hope that she had of, of a redeemer lord and i thank you that we have a redeemer uh, that we have a Redeemer who loves us. Um, though we are poor and destitute, Lord, though we've got nothing to offer, Lord, I thank you that you love us anyway.
and that you have paid our debts, Lord, and set us free and uh, brought us under your protection, Lord, and provided for us. And I ask that you would give us comfort in that this week, that you'd be with each of these each of these young guys as they go off to school and wherever else they're doing, Lord. May they know your love. May they know your protection. Uh, and I pray that you bring us all back again next week to finish the story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.